When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, it's Jeff. What you're about to hear is the most recent episode of Novel Gazing, which is Book Riot's new, newish, literary fiction-focused podcast, hosted by Mary Kay McBrayer and Louise Johnson. They're really great. I've, I've really enjoyed listening to it. I think you will too, so we're going to drop one in here for you. This one's about literary adaptations and features an interview with the director of Emma, the new edition of Emma, adaptation of Emma, version of Emma. Director's name is Autumn DeWild, so I thought it was a specially good time to introduce you to that. If you're interested in listening to it more on an ongoing basis, it's called Novel Gazing, which is such a good title that I'm angry I didn't think of it. I'll get back at you, Amanda, for beating me at that one. Man, that's a good title. Go find it. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Novel Gazing. Let's go. I'm Louise. And I'm Mary Kay. And together we are Novel Gazing, the podcast that talks all about literary fiction. We are recording today's show on February the 18th, so if anything dramatic happens in the literary world (laughs) between now and the next uh, episode, I promise we'll catch up with it for you. Um, On today's show, we're discussing current affairs and news from the literary fiction world, and we are looking forward to Emma with an interview with the director. Yeah. And we are also sharing our latest tweets. I know, right? I'm very excited about this interview. (laughs) But before we do that, let's hear from one of our sponsors. This episode is sponsored by The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy. Robbie and Trevor Cressmont have enough wealth to ensure they'll never be found guilty of any wrongdoing, even if everyone believes they're behind the deaths of their ex-girlfriends. And let us all take a collective angry sigh at that. Lauren O'Brien, the new girl at school, has a dark past of her own, and she's desperate for a fresh start. Except when she starts a relationship with Robbie, her chance is put in jeopardy. During what's meant to be their last weekend together, Lauren stumbles across evidence that might just implicate Robbie. And after a third death rocks the town, she must decide whether to end things with Robbie or risk becoming another cautionary tale. This is an edge-of-your-seat YA thriller that's perfect for fans of Karen McManus and Holly Jackson. Make sure you pick that up now wherever books are sold. And thank you once again to The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy for sponsoring today's show. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang. So this is an interesting love story. It's great for fans of Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow and High Fidelity. It's set in the mid-90s at NYU. And it follows young Wang, who has gotten the advice of love through Chinese numerology from his uncle. So he believes that he will have seven great loves in his life. And then he meets Irena in 95 
and she's like the best. She's brilliant, charismatic, quick-witted, funny. They fall in love. But the thing is, she's number six. So if he is to have seven great loves, does that mean his time with Arena is going to come to an end? So this is a love letter to Western pop culture, Eastern traditions, and being a first-generation New Yorker. Make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of 888 Love and the Divine Burden of Numbers by Abraham Chang for sponsoring this episode. So the first item that we wanted to discuss today is in the realm of uh, prizes for women's writers. It is a new prize for women writers in memory of Carol Shields. And she may be an author familiar to some of you. She's not um, ever really broken through, I don't think, in the UK, apart from being shortlisted for the Booker. um, I think it was in 2003. And yeah, so they have her friends have set up a prize uh, for women writers in memory of her. Eligible books must be published in English in the US and Canada, and it includes books uh, translated from Spanish and French. And writers must be citizens or residents for um, at least five years of the US or Canada, which, again, ties in with Carol's background. Mm -hmm. But the interesting point is that I think um, I wanted to chat about with you today, Mary-Kate, was Mm -hmm. that um, the stats here are really interesting when you look at women winning prizes that's mm. not a sentence i should say like three times fast right with winning <laughs> prizes so um probably the nearest one oh sorry i got the date wrong it is 2002 it is uh she was nominated for the booker prize in unless i added a year on by mistake 22 women have won the booker prize over 50 years and what's really interesting is uh, is that if you think about that nine of those women have won it in the last 20 years Mm -hmm. and obviously in the last two years two women shared with each other Mm -hmm. so if you then compare that to and i'm conscious i'm throwing a lot of numbers out here so just yell at me and go what um i'm I'm tracking it and plus i have it in front of me so it's helpful for me (laughs) right um so if you look at the Nobel prize for example as well Mm -hmm. that has been awarded to um 116 individuals with 101 men and 15 (laughs) women yeah yeah that's quite a difference that is very different yes so how do we feel about like gendered awards awards specifically looking to reward women writers well how do you feel about it well i i'm pretty cool about it really because i think it's yeah. <laughs> the end. Next. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I like it because, um, especially for uh, groups that have been underrepresented, um, mm. like I mean, a hundred and one to fifteen is a dramatic difference. Like that, it's a heck of a difference, right? Like with the with the Booker Prize, it's like okay, so slightly less, but. Okay, it seems like we're making strides, right? To yeah, it feels to like a trajectory. That. Um, but the Nobel prizes, it's like well, okay, y'all, like <laughs> what are we doing? <laughs> there's no way that that is. There's no way that that is fair. So I feel like awards to kind of I don't even know how to like retroactively undo some of or not even undo but repair right because you can't undo it yeah you're kind of it's almost like an appendix to be like hey here's this thing that is a problem um we Mm -hmm. know it's a problem we can't undo 
the problematic things that have happened because of it, but we can try to repair it in the future, yeah. like going forward. So I like that. Um, I think it can, it can sometimes get to be, I mean, this is not the case. This seems like a very inclusive prize, but I know when I was looking for, you know, grants to apply for and stuff like that, it was, the list would get so deeply specific about all of the yes. identity politics that you had to identify with it. It was like, mm. um, I mean, I get it, but also, um, it's weird. It's a weird kind of gatekeeping. I don't know. Um, not yeah. and again, not this prize, but I've seen that happen before where it's like, wow, like this is a very small underrepresented percentage. And I'm not saying that that doesn't need to happen, um, but it, it's it almost and this might be an unpopular opinion, but feels like an overcorrection. Ooh. Um, I, I give you a dramatic. Ooh, ooh thank you. <laughs> and again, I, and I, you know, I haven't done a lot of thinking about it or research into it, so I could be completely wrong. And would love to hear from our listeners um, about some different perspectives on that. But I do remember, mm. like, as a writer who was, I felt pretty good and needed kind of like a leg up. Um, that it was. I mean, it was either like very inclusive, so I had no shot at it, or it was like very exclusive, so I had no shot at it, um, if that yeah. makes sense. No, yeah. I think that's, you're kind of touching on something quite important there, isn't it? That notion of inclusivity becoming exclusive mm -hmm. in a way, and kind of in, in perhaps unintended circumstances and unintended consequences of making... Um, something incredibly exclusive mm -hmm. is that you in a way practice what you're trying to work against i think so and depending on the group of course that mm. might be what needs to happen um okay. does that make sense yeah no i think it does i think there's a balance there isn't there that we're mm -hmm. trying to articulate this kind of mediatory space of recognizing that you need to talk to these groups and these uh communities that have been denied erased forgotten not allowed to participate within mm -hmm. these um established things but equally just to be conscious of what you're doing with that stance right i think so yeah i, I mean i think that that has been and that's just my one person's firsthand experience of it but yeah we'd love um, to like as 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 mary Kay says we would love to hear from your perspectives on this because we have very particular backgrounds and circumstances. Mm -hmm. um, but if you've been supported by these or you found them liberatory or um, reductive, mm -hmm. in a sense, this kind of scheme, yeah, it, it'd be great to have some sort of thoughts from the wider um, novel gazing community. Yes, we would love that. We And actually the news article that I brought is, um, and I kind of rode your coattails on this. I hope that was cool. <laughs> um, but it's a new prize for disabled writers or works of writers featuring the experience of having an, a disability accurately. So mm -hmm. it can be either way. Um, it's the, and I'm going to mispronounce this, I'm sure of it, but Barbellion, is that how you say it? Do you know? I'm not 100% sure because I, I couldn't find a pronunciation guide. So we yeah, will go for Neither the could I. I think it's a person's name. So it could be oh, like... Okay. Uh, it could, you know, people's names are pronounced different ways depending on what their family preference is. But anyway, um, 
In that article, which is written by Book Riot's own Margaret Kingsbury, it talks about Mm -hmm. the vagueness of defining a disability as well as sort of gatekeeping of invisible disabilities. So if it's a disability that doesn't present visually, um, that is is a different experience. Right. Of. Yeah. And it doesn't. I mean, I'm not saying that it's more or less of an experience. It just is different. So um, that article was really interesting to me. And of course, we'll link to both of those in the show notes so that you can read those, make sure that we're accurately representing them. And if we went way off base, definitely get in touch with us. Or if you're like, no, you did it exactly right. We like hearing praise, too. I don't want to say that. <laughs> Either or is fine. We like both of them. Yeah, I think Margaret's article is really interesting in that she recognises that prizes like this mm-hmm. don't exist in a way. You know, the one of the um, other prizes she shouts out is the Schneider Family Book Award for children's and young adult literature. Mm-hmm. So it's great to see um, attempts to address this, but she articulates really well, as you said, that balance between... Um, gatekeeping and, and, and inclusivity. It's it's mm-hmm. a really good read. It really is. Um, and I felt like I learned so much. Like, it's not a super long article, but I learned a lot from because it packs mm. a real punch, you know. Um, but yeah, I really like that. And then while we were talking about um, the prize winnings, um, this yes. is a, a smaller amount of uh, financial re- award? Reward? Award award yes um it's it's a smaller number so it um it's interesting too like when i uh was looking at um those types of things to apply for um it does seem like the more specific the award gets the less financial award it has okay um so to kind of compare the numbers and i'm looking back up here uh Louise, what was the prize for, let's just start big, right? Let's start Nobel Prize. This is the one with 101 men winners and 15 women winners. Yeah, so this varies um, in, in sort of circum- uh, various rules applied to it. But in 2020, I've, uh, I was looking and the prize is, well, it was clearly mm-hmm. um, $935,000, uh, which is the wow. equivalent to 848,000 euros. Or seven hundred and sixteen thousand pound. So either way you look at it, that is a chunk of yeah. money. Yeah, and that's that's like a, a, a an incredible figure for writing. Yeah, I could do some serious damage with that amount of yeah, money. Yeah, we're here to help. If anyone wants to donate that, <laughs> for <to>. real. Yeah, <laughs> you want we'll, us to we'll help, help you spend your money? I'm glad to do that. Yeah, I have very supportive my in these situations. Champagne taste in a beer bottle pocket. So <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so, okay, so that's the Nobel in literature. Yeah, and then, like, the um, Booker Prize uh, mm. is 50000 So, again, that's still nothing to laugh at, but you can see, like, the, the grades of... of I, I don't want to say achievement, because that's not quite right, is it? Mm. But the grades of... Um, the financial grades that apply to these. Right. So that's £50,000. Yes, right. for the book. Okay. So it would be a little bit more in dollars. Yes. Okay. Depending um, on how awfully the British economy is. Right, doing, but still but a fraction <laughs> of the Nobel. Still a fraction of yes, that. And it then is. um so the new prize in memory of Carol Shields, that's okay. 
in between those two, right? Yeah, so that was a um, hundred and thousand. I'm going to say numbers like I have said numbers before. Uh, one hundred and fifty thousand <laughs> Canadian dollars, which is approximately a uh, hundred thousand. What is it with numbers today? They're hard. That's just hard. numbers. We're we're English. We're we're words people. Yeah, numbers so, are not my numbers are right now. Mean. <laughs> so right, I'm gonna fight through this. Fight through this pain. And uh, 113 thousand US dollars, approximately, which is approximately 85 thousand. So again, you can see, and they they mention this in the article that we'll link to, mm-hmm. that they've gone out to try and make a big splash in memory of her. Mm-hmm. And again, it's it's a big big figure, and with writers salaries being what they are Mm -hmm. and the average figures of what a writer earns it's it's important stuff it really is yeah and particularly for women who may i what i'm reaching to towards here is the notion of women writers and supporting themselves in this it's such an important thing to fund women with the um chance to be able to write you know, you're reaching back to stuff like Virginia Woolf, aren't you, and the room of their own, giving them that opportunity to be to be creative. So that award is significant, I think. Mm. And um or I mean, not only the award, but the financial benefit of winning an award like that. And um the prize that uh, for disability writers um is six hundred pounds. So it's yeah. a significant you know, difference. And I'm not saying that, I mean, I could do damage with that too, but, um, (laughs) I'm not right. I'm not saying like, Oh, that's not enough. Every little bit counts for sure, but it's just a a big disparity and it's just something to notice. I think it's something to note. Um, Mm -hmm. certainly it'll prove incredibly beneficial for people and it'll prove incredibly beneficial for the person who wins it because you can't quantify that moment can you really financially right. but equally right there is a space and we are looking out here at corporate sponsors to get yourself involved in these dialogues mm-hmm. for, sure. for sure uh speaking of is it time to hear a word from our lovely sponsors indeed it is yay another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it that's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. So, in anticipation of the new film adaptation of Emma... I, and this is Mary Kay talking, got to interview the director, Autumn DeWild. And I know, it was amazing. I had so much fun. Um, And what you're about to hear is that interview itself. So I hope that you enjoy it. And um, she's amazing. So I hope you like it. Okay. Hi, Mary Kay of Autumn. Hi, Autumn. This is Mary Kay. Hi. I'm really excited. Yeah, I'm really excited to be talking to you today. Um, I co-host Book Riot's literary fiction podcast, Novel Gazing, 
Um, but so uh, before we talk about like um, Emma specifically and your experience with that, I thought that I should ask you, what are you reading right now? Or if you're not reading anything right now, what was the last thing that you read that you love? Well, <laughs> I, I'm still reading Emma. I don't know what's wrong with me. I'm like, I'm still doing research. It doesn't make sense. I suppose I'm having trouble letting go, which isn't the worst thing. Um, uh, uh, and the, the next book, let's see, I have a couple of the next book, I have a, I kind of have a pile of books. I, do I can't tell you one of them because I, I want to make it into a movie, so i got to cut that one out of the story. Okay. Hold on. <laughs> That's oh, you fair. Know what? <laughs> yeah, I did read uh, a book that I'm very obsessed with, um, and I'm obsessed with the writer um, Smoke Up In Your Eyes by Caitlin Dottie. Yes. Um, which was really eye-opening, yeah, on the death industry. And I'm a big fan of hers uh, now. Um, yeah, she's great. And, and her... Yeah, yeah, and also, and and then I read the the follow up book as well. Um, but this this one is I just you know you think you know what your plan is, and I realized I had no idea, and it really inspired me to have a conversation with my parents about what they wanted, you know, for when they died, and you know, it's, right. it's just it is weird the blindness we have to that part of the life cycle. Totally, and um, and uh, and I. Yeah, and I love the way she writes about it too. It's like, um, yeah. So that was that was kind of like a really. It, it's interesting to have such an eye-opening experience from a book. Yeah, and it and that book is so like, it is eye-opening because we really don't like talking about. I mean, we like talking about death like as a concept, but not like what will happen when you die, like necessarily, or like what happens with the people you leave behind. You know. So that's cool, and um, it's true. And, yeah, and it's yeah, it's such an interesting and new industry. The sort of you know the natural death movement. So that that, that felt like it opened up a whole world to me, which I'm grateful for. Me too. I like that too. And um, it totally makes sense to me as well that you're still reading Emma because I will go deep into the wormhole of research okay. about like anything that I'm excited about and I'm not a director or anything. So I have no, like much less reason to do that. But, um, <laughs> but that makes complete sense to me because it, I mean, the world in this movie is just, it's so vivid and I have to confess that like one of the reasons that I was so excited to talk to you about this film is that historically for me personally, at Regency period novels have not really appealed to me, but this film did like immediately. Um, and I think it's for several reasons, oh, but so yeah, I loved it. And I, and um, on our podcast that we host, we've talked about sometimes like there's just some books that like it's hard for us to get into. And um, I think a lot of the times like a great move, a film adaptation of a book is a really way, a good way of accessing it because now like, when I go back and read that book, I'm never going to not picture these actors as those characters, which I loved. Um, you know what's really helpful? Because I, I knew Emma, but I don't, I didn't really, I don't, I feel now that I didn't really get it. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a whole language translation that needs to happen in order for you to see the humor and the historical education you need to understand you know, that she's poking fun at the class system. Right. Um, and and it, it really helps to understand it. And so the book that really helped me was um, The Annotated Emma, 
by um, David M. Shepard. I'm not sure if I'm saying his name right. Okay. But, you know, each page, it's a bit scary because it looks like it's gigantic, the most biggest book you'll ever read, I suppose. But, um, but what's great about it is each page of story has on the opposite page a page of notes. You're not right. flipping back and forth trying to find the meaning of things. It's right there, opposite. And he also added a lot of, like, interesting historical facts to fill out your... You know, and this all feels like it comes from a personal interest, not just, uh, not just um, you know, um, an academic viewpoint, you know, and that's mm-hmm. cool. You know, there's just random facts, like this is what a carriage looks like from that time period, and, right. you know, and this is kind of what someone would have worn in the morning, and it, it was a real, like, it changed the book for me, um, you know. I didn't realize how much I wasn't getting by glossing over, perhaps, especially words that we still use but had a different meaning then, right. you know. That's that's fascinating to me because, um, and you led me right into one of my, like, one of my questions that I had for you, which was I didn't realize how funny this book was until I saw it just even on the trailer. And I was wondering, especially because there is so much context, right, that goes with a book like this and with the pages of footnotes, I would like to thank you on behalf of lazy readers everywhere for doing that work for us on the screen. Um, but, like, how do you adapt? How did you make it so funny? Like, how, I mean, I know it's funny on the page, but how did – what was – was there a process that you used or did you – like, is it exactly yeah. – I think, I feel like it's adapted really well in that way, if that makes sense. Well, um – uh, a book everyone should read is The Luminaries by Eleanor Catton, and she wrote the screenplay. Right. So, uh, when I was asked to pitch on the film, I was given uh, the, the first draft, okay. and I was very excited because she's a really electric writer. Okay. Um, and then I, part of my pitch was this uh, screwball comedy slant on it. Um, right. I had about a month to prepare with her script and the research I was doing, and this is when I started realizing, wait, Jane Austen's funny. I just, you know, I suppose mm-hmm. I did know that it's, you know, Sense and Sensibility, it so has a lot of humor in it, um, Ang Lee's version, and that's why it's one of my favorite of the Jane Austen films. Um, uh, but, uh, and the awkwardness in that movie is so well played, you know, um, but, but there are different ways that their behavior is, restrained due to the uh, the rules of their class and position in society. Um, but but um, when I got to when I got the film and and I got together with Eleanor Cat and she was mm-hmm. so funny herself. I, I didn't know this about her. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're, she's very she's I mean I don't say it lightly, she's a genius. Mm-hmm. And and so she really she, from the ground up understood the book but she also really got the humor and so when I proposed the screwball comedy approach she really dug into that and we actually it, you know our a big goal was to humanize the characters you know and to say to the audience it's 1815 but they're human I don't really right. care about modernizing it's another way you could go with the story right. because the story is so good but I really wanted to create a historical film Mm-hmm. Because it was such an exciting challenge for me, and and then we just we shared a lot of personal, really ridiculous stories in our life, and those were threaded into the film. 
And, and really, they made sense because well, we both understood the character so well and the play. And so, and that's what happens when you connect their characters. You're like, oh, this is like when this such and such happened to me. And totally. you start, we put some of that in the film, you know, we took some liberty with the story because it felt like they were ways of really highlighting these specific character traits and the, you know, maybe making it a little clearer what the sort of passive aggressive fights that were going on between characters. Um, uh, yeah. (laughs) I, I loved that. And one of the, the visual cues that to me, like, you know, when you're in the theater, you kind of feed off the energy of the other people around you and everything. But I belly laughed the first time that Mrs. Elton was on screen <laughs> with that hairstyle. I was like, okay, so we're not, we can't take her seriously, right? Like, I think that, and I just, I loved that that was the setup. And immediately, um, we, it delivers on that image, you know, where she's like, well, I really like a minimalist, you know, (laughs) that's really what I would prefer. And I just, I love that. I know, I know. Yeah. That's like the, I mean, Eleanor Catton has this amazing, like underplayed writing style where she, she just can, she's so good at taking, uh, I'll tell her something that takes me, as you can see like uh, five minutes to explain and then she boils it down to one perfect sentence you know so I used to call her the Jane Austen translator I was like look this is what I'm thinking this is my idea put it through the translator she goes I've got it it's this amazing so she kind of like synthesized um, we, all of the notes yeah, we had a lot a, of fun. yeah that's great and and I guess um, because you, I'm just you know I'm not really in the film world but um, it's more of a partnership in this case with uh, with you and the writer of this of the screenplay, is that what you're kind of saying? It really was. Um, it, it. I don't know that everyone gets as lucky as I did, but um, you know, she she is. It's so fascinating to see if if I did have an idea, no matter how small it was, and sometimes it was. A lot of times it was that she also wrote into the script a lot of the non-verbal ideas. Okay. The things that normally would... A lot of times the writer wouldn't be maybe involved with because it's by the time you're blocking the scene. Mm-hmm. But it was really important to us to include it into the script so the actors could get a picture of an idea of the other things going on in the room besides the words. Right. And so she was gracious enough to write a lot of that into the script. And, and it was... Uh, really interesting to see, even if it was a small thing, that she could calculate quickly, oh, we can't do that, because that would throw off the meaning of this person, what they say, and that person, and how it changes. There's a lot of mysteries in this book mm-hmm. that are revealed at the end, and we're, we were laying clues along the way, which was a style that Jane Austen invented, which is the detective story style. Uh, Agatha Christie based her style of writing on Emma, Amazing. which is, there's, you know, a, a couple big secrets are revealed at the end, and mm-hmm. if you go back and read it a second time, you realize that you were told all the secrets, it was in the dialogue, it was in the story, um, the clues were there, and you just missed them, mm-hmm. um, because you weren't looking for them, and, uh, and so that was really important to both of us to leave these physical signs of, you know, the answers to the, to the mystery, um, as well as some of the things that they say that give it away. That's so interesting to me. And I, I remembered, um, I didn't know that until I was 
kind of doing some homework for this interview and I was like, oh, that makes so much sense because it's there all along, but you didn't know it until someone told you and then it's like, I can't unsee it now, you know, like it's, it was there all along. Um, Yeah. And I love being able to realize that. that's also a really basic human thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You know, like, you know, it's like if you've ever had like find out that there's a secret affair going on among your friend group or like so-and-so sleeping with so-and-so and you had no idea and as soon as you know you remember seven things that told you that was happening right you know and um and i and that was another one of those these human problems that never that don't have anything to do with being 200 years earlier you know like we were, those were things we were really trying to highlight and remind people like we're still like this, by the way, you know. <laughs> it totally is. Uh, we just have a different set of social roles. Yeah, I I was noticing, too, that the social cues in this period are so foreign to me until I'm seeing it happen, like when Mrs. Elton is sitting in their pew at church, and they are kind of like, <laughs> yeah. who is this? What is what? Because- like, no one ever says anything, but it, it's, yeah. it's there. It's um, <laughs> it's so great. We call that kind of like the we call that the um, the editor and I call that kind of like the asshole ballet. You know, <laughs> like <laughs> it's like the you know Mrs. Elton is such a dick, but Emma is such a dick too. You know, yeah. and so she's been like the queen dick. You know, and then she walks in and she's like, "What? Someone who's more a dick than me? This is impossible." <laughs> <laughs> and that's oh, a yes. really important observation that Jane Austen made was that Mrs. Elton, you know, is uh, the nouveau riche, supposedly very crass mm-hmm. and and uh, unwelcome in uh, Emma's uh, society, and yet she's a lot like Emma, and right. Emma is faced with a mirror of her of an exaggeration of her behavior, and she doesn't like the way it looks. And Mrs. Elton is really important. Uh, part of Emma changing, mm-hmm. you know, and and I think also another thing that was really important to Eleanor and I was that you know everyone got made fun of and every you know no one really got gets away from the pen, right? From the it's... blade, you know, um, and uh, and as much as Mrs. Elton seems like um, you know an annoying uh, thorn in everyone's side, she also has a lot of heart mm-hmm. and is would be the last person to make fun of the space, mm-hmm. you know, and that's apparent in that, in that, uh, Box Hill scene. Yeah. And when, when she's like, you want it, you're ready for this walk? And Miss Bates is like, um, yes, that would be great. <laughs> like, yeah, I love how they're there. It's so, it's yeah. really exactly passive aggressive, but it, there's a conversation that's happening in the subtext that they don't really are like verbalize that it comes across really well on the yeah. screen. And I think I was just missing it when I was reading it yeah. myself. So, um, I loved that. And well, it requires a, an understand. I think it requires, you know, in order to see it in the text, you have to un- understand that it was there right? Um, all around them. And that was, you know, and there's a certain, she, what she's writing about it, it requires a certain understanding of the, the of, of the world that she was living in, and, and it really helps, you know, to to get it. Yeah. Yeah, and um, come, like going back to something that you said a moment ago about how the characters are like no one gets not no one doesn't get made fun of. 
I love that because even our hero, Mr. Knightley, I think you explained him as being a mansplainer who doesn't want to be a mansplainer. And just like all of them have like really strong, um, uh, like positive qualities, but they also all are kind of sucky, you know, like they all have like a, a draw, like a, a drawback from their personalities. And I think that rings really authentic and realistic. And so even though they're not, you don't necessarily like want to ne- necessarily be their friend you kind of are interested at least I mean I kind of do want to be Emma's friend and I think also I just needed to tell you and I know that this is yeah. the original the novel but the thing that endeared Emma or endears Emma to me the most the character is that when Mr. Elton came on to her she told Harriet right away and I just think that not everyone would do that you know? Like yeah. Don't... You know, actually in the book, she takes her sweet time. <laughs> and she's a bit relieved that Harriet's sick. Um, and, uh, uh, but, you know, we, we, but, but at the same, you're right. She didn't, she didn't go, she didn't not tell her. And that is right. really unusual, I think. Uh, you know, and I, I, what I love about that moment with Harriet is that she's, and I think a lot of girls have experienced this with their best friends, where they're coming to bond with you over a problem with a boy, but they kind of get it wrong. Mm-hmm. You know, and Emily doesn't really realize how attached Harriet is. It, it has been a game to her, and she doesn't realize until that moment that it wasn't a game for Harriet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so she really comes in so they can bond over how stupid Mr. Elton is and how <laughs> he's just trying to raise his position in society and he doesn't even know what love is. Right. And then, you know, that, that was part of the reason why we put the flower game uh, in before. Uh, we thought it was like a way of combining this, like, beautiful moment between all these girls playing this game and mm-hmm. that. And I'm sure it's life is really fine without Emma. Mm-hmm. You know, she really has a community around her. And then by her having flower in her face, it creates this physical humiliation in advance of the of the humiliating news. Right. You know, and I love like a visual metaphor for uh, for uh, a terrible situation. Totally. I, I think a lot of us usually when we when we have a terrible thing that's happened to us, we usually have a really strange memory of of a visual part of that story. You know, and mm-hmm. sometimes. The funniest, you know, the most saddest things are the funniest things later. So there's a lot of crying that has to happen in, towards the end of the movie. So I sort of want it to be like tragic and, and hilarious, you know, mm-hmm. that theme. Yes, and I, I loved that they were playing that game when she got that news um, because she was oh. so happy. And then it's just, I, know. A, it's, I don't know. I, I, I love that also that that. Um, was you, you're saying like that didn't happen in that order in the novel, but adapting it to the screen as you kind of re- rearranged and com- compressed some of the the plot elements. Is that am I remembering yeah. that right? Okay. Yeah, in the book, in the book, she waits a, a bit before she can get up the nerve to tell Harriet, um, right. which is important because she's. You know, it's a, it is a brave moment for Emma, but it's not brave enough. Right. And um, and there's the way I think we Eleanor and I realized that you could really and Anya Anya was a big part of creating Emma's character. Um, was uh, the way you could really sympathize with her was seeing her make half 
half of the right decision, mm-hmm. you know, because I think we can all see that in ourselves, those moments where we were, we did that sort of bullshit apology, right. you know, or we totally. told, or like, and, you know, yeah, immediately afterwards. the truth, <laughs> and it felt like maybe it was enough. Right. And then immediately yeah. regretting it. And I think it's interesting <laughs> that it's the secret. It is kind of a secret that really only Harriet and her know, and that, that's very topical. That's mm-hmm. the, you know, Mr. Elton, he didn't physically attack her, but he put her in a very compromised position in that carriage. Yeah. And he got really angry when he got rejected and and blamed her, and that is a very modern idea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and that, that's not modern because that's been happening for a long time. Um, you know, and and then, you know, when Mr. Elton waltzes back in with Mrs. Elton, it's really only Harriet and Emma know what Mr. Elton did, right. you know, um, and I think that that bonds them together, you know, because it's still something that they couldn't really talk about what the vicar did, you know, it would be embarrassing for her, and it would, it wouldn't, you know, it's... And it would embarrass his new wife, that, too. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I love the attention to the detail of, like, manners in the movie, Um, particularly, like, with dating and marriage and uh, the weddings themselves, Uh, because there's, even now, there's just such a a detailed, intricate, easily missteppable, like, etiquette for those particular um, phenomena, I guess, but I... I just thought that, like, even as it was happening, I was like, oh, no. Like, I don't know if you've experienced, I mean, I'm sure you have, but this movie is so relatable in that way where it's like, oh, I remember going to a wedding or, you know, someone is dating, but I didn't know they were dating, and I said a thing, and I didn't mean for it to come across like that, but I'm sure that it did. Like, I just, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's real relatable. Yeah, we, we talked, we talked, no, we, we we, this this was how all of the actors and Eleanor and I and the whole team, this is how we really translated these moments. As, as I often would say this reminds me of the time, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I mean, some of the stuff was like the nosebleed is because I, I get nosebleeds all the time. It's so annoying, you know. And, <laughs> and I've often had a romantic situation where a nosebleed was not welcome and I love that the human body betrays us sometimes in the most you know, uh, you know, and when I'm angry and I cry and I don't, I'm so pissed off that I'm crying because yes. I don't want it to diminish the right. power of my anger, you know. Yes, yeah, the misrepresentation. The yeah. Us, you know. I loved it. And, and when and that so happens, we talked about yeah. this a lot, yeah. And Mr. Knightley, like Johnny and I talked a lot about the, 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 the path of panic attacks because he and I both, I suffered a lot more of panic attacks when I was younger mm-hmm. and found my way through them and uh, and and uh, Johnny has uh, been plagued with them, uh, you know, in his life in, 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 in a way that I think we could both see in a comical way. So Mr. Knightley has like quite a few panic attacks, some of mm-hmm. them he's, he's trying to suppress, you know, and, um, and so it was fun to put those real things in. Uh, you know, you can't say it didn't happen. Right. So it helped make, and I think too, Mr. Knightley, like Johnny was such a great collaborator because I, I think that the fact that Mr. Knightley is almost always right, you know, and, yeah. and he should be telling her, 
he's the only one that can be honest with her. Right. And that, that mansplaining thing is is a is a delicate subject. Because some people, mm. I'm sure, will be like, "He's not a mansplainer. He's right. He is right. He is it's right." Just that he's not getting through to Emma. You know, right. he's so right, and he's not getting through to her. And 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 he's kind of blinded by his own uh, in in his criticism of her. He's not seeing the things in himself that he needs to improve too, which is why that speech he gives at the proposal is so such an incredible, you know, such an incredible speech because, you know, he, he was so busy pointing the finger at her, he didn't realize how far he needed to come as right. a human as well, um, in a different way, you know. Yes. But the etiquette was really fun. You know, I told the actors from the beginning, I was like, we are going to go full on. I'm sorry, you're going to have to get used to it. Um, but I think that the true comedy will come out of this, you know, mm-hmm. and also the, it'll be truly sexy and truly romantic if we include this, you know, the the, the intensity of the, the rules. Um, and mm-hmm. so they embraced it fully. And, and you know, the, every time an actor was doing a scene with someone and they would accidentally touch someone's arm as you would in a normal world, modern world, I would say, don't touch her, don't touch her. <laughs> right. You know? uh, and that... Yeah, and, I was, and, and they got they got into it because by the time like Emma and and Mr. Knightley's fingertips touch mm-hmm. in the hallway before the dance, mm-hmm. I mean I feel the electricity. Oh, totally. The actor felt it. She didn't have her gloves on. I mean, can you believe that must have just been so amazing to feel mm-hmm. that? And we were checking with the etiquette. Uh, our wonderful etiquette advisor, and I was like, can't she have her gloves off in this moment? And, and Mr. Knightley, you know, Johnny and Anya was like, please, can we have the gloves off? It'll make it so much better. She's <laughs> like, yes, because if she had just eaten, she wouldn't have her gloves back on. <laughs> oh, we went hard for That's you know? great. And we went really hard for it's uh, that's amazing, and it, it's I didn't know that specifically, but it definitely you're right. It conveys that on the screen for sure. Um, yeah, I loved this movie, and I'm yeah, it's beautiful. Yeah, my my DOP. Uh, well, thank you, my DOP. Uh, Chris Blauvel, my cinematographer. And when we were filming the moment when they hold hands, you know, towards the end of the movie, and she's got gloves on and he doesn't, and mm-hmm. there's this like squeak of the leather. Mm-hmm. He stops the shot. And he looks around. He's like, he's like, oh, this is glove porn. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I was like, yeah, man. I was like, let's go all the way. <laughs> right. Amazing. I know that you are, you love doing the research, or it seems like, because it, it just is a kind of an experience. But do yeah. you have a project that um, is like your bucket list project, or like one that you would really love to do next, or or have one in mind, or is this the one? Um, I would, I, you know... I can't go into details because, as you know, those things are top secret. Sure. But definitely on my bucket list is an action movie. Okay. Because I, I just think that there's, like, there's a lot of room for visual improvement. And I love mm-hmm. Die Hard. Like, I love Die Hard. Mm-hmm. Like, I think it's maybe one of the best Christmas movies of all time. I agree. And I just think, you know, in the old days, you know, in the early James Bond movies and, and uh, uh, movies with Stephen Queen. You know, the, there was a lot of color. The cars were orange. The chairs were, you know, marigold. They wore these, you know, beautiful suits that were of different colors, not just black, you know. And, and so I would love to do, like, a really visually 
um, electric action movie, but like a, a real action movie, you cool. know. So yeah, that would be that's on the bucket list for sure. Okay, I would I will see that. Those are, those are romantic. <laughs> yeah, those are rom coms. You know, like those are those are rom coms. I don't know what anyone like how anyone's fooling themselves. <laughs> they're always they're always so savvy. That's you know? that's true. I, I, just, I love how that. these things are separated from men, and I'm like, what about this is specifically men? The fast cars because I they definitely have tears in their eyes when two men are talking to each other. <laughs> That's true. I hadn't thought about that. That's, oh, that's such a good... I'm never going to unsee that now, either. <laughs> um, uh, so, uh, my last question is for writers of literary prose like me. Um, what makes a book sort of sing to a director that it could be adapted well into a film? I think that there aren't any rules. I okay. think that, you know, you... I suppose you have a human connection to it. Okay. Some books are still, like, they're so legendary. Like, you just feel the influence, the, and you feel that they that they will have an effect till the end of time. And mm-hmm. maybe it's that thing that captures, in an interesting, you know, packaging, you know, possibly that seems fresh and new. There's still these base human issues that people have, and... Mm-hmm. You know, Ben Gibbard from Death Cab for Cutie told me once, he's like, you know, I can't remember really what I was so upset about in my 20s, but I remember every single person hurt my feelings in high school. And I think, like, you know, we were always be obsessed with this, like, transition time period, I think, you know, in the teens and the early 20s, you know, and, and, uh, and those things. Maybe they maybe they never stop feeling relevant. Maybe we're never stopped trying to resolve those, those issues from our teenage life, you know? So mm-hmm. I suppose those those probably spring out. But I wouldn't want to discourage anyone from, you know, uh, from telling an unusual story. It just seems like, you know, a director just hooks onto something and, and can see it as a film. You know, and that's that's like a bit of magic that you know mm. you kind of just gotta write, you gotta write what's true to your heart and not think about how it translates. What you just heard was Mary Kay McBrayer, that's me, interviewing the director Autumn DeWild about her debut feature film, the adaptation of Emma from Focus Features, which will have its limited release on February twenty first and its wide release on March sixth. So definitely go see that movie. Uh, you won't be disappointed. It was a delight. It oh, truly was. Excellent. I'm yeah. so pleased. Me too. Oh, that's a, oh, exciting times. All right. Um, so yeah, I think we finish off today then with a chat about our current reads. Yeah. So what is it that you're tucking into at the moment? So right now I am currently reading... Um, Stephen Graham Jones' new horror novel, The Only Good Indians. Mm-hmm. And I'm really enjoying it so far. I'm not super deep into it yet, but it's it's fun. And I know that it's like, um, it, it of course, because his work does this, tackles some overarching like big problems in society. Yeah. But it also is fun on the level of like, the horror movie of like it's it's not campy but it definitely alludes to a lot of the horror genre both in literature and film 
And I really right. like it when, I mean, obviously, because I love film adaptations of stuff. And y'all have heard me say before that sometimes I'll watch the movie before I read the book so that I have those characters in mind. But I, I really enjoy that kind of crossover and acknowledgement of different genres because yeah. neither of those exist in a vacuum. Like they influence each other. They just do. Because yes. the experience of them, if you do it, if you do it the same way, it has a similar experience. So, yeah, the only good Indians by Stephen Graham Jones, um, and it's real, real good so far. Um, what are you reading, <laughs> Louise? Uh, I am looking at Animal Farm. Ooh, uh, I, but I'm looking at the um, graphic novel adaptation, and it's by a Brazilian uh, artist called Odia. And I'm going to spell that out as well for people who may be looking for it. It's O-D-Y-R. And oh, dear. Okay, yeah. I would never have put that together. I don't know. No, well, I, I checked with someone and they were like, no, this is what I would go for for the pronunciation. So um, apologies if I've just um, mangled it substantially, but hopefully <laughs> it's accurate. Um, so, yeah, Animal Farm. Again, this is tying into the film theme. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I watched the film recently and I was fascinated to find out that the uh, the animated film, I was fascinated to find out that the CIA had actually funded it and asked for a different ending. I did to the not film know that. The book. I know, right? I was sat there going, this is not what I remember reading. Um, and for those of you who are familiar with the text, you'll know that... Um, certain things happen and certain characters um end up in certain positions that is totally reversed and wow there is much more of a political edge to it uh and one that is funded by the cia backers who um essentially said if you want to make this film you're going to have to make it with this twist in the <laughs> twist in the tail she says um, <laughs> yeah i know right added puns yeah. um <laughs> But yeah, so um, I'm still intensely traumatised by what happens to Boxer because I am pro the pony in every story. Um, But it is such a beautiful, beautiful adaptation. Uh, The artwork is stunning. What's really interesting is the embrace of like white space through it. So it really makes it this kind of story that could be happening in your life right now. Um, But yeah, it's, it's... something i'd really recommend people look for and look out for and yeah watch it with the film because then you'll just be um able to chat to me about it and go right are you was it just it's such a strange ending to apply to this tale of isn't so it's basically like uh making a political satire about propaganda in support of propaganda (laughs) or like into propaganda wow i know it's (laughs) it's brilliant we will um link to an article about it as well in the notes okay uh but yeah i really was quite fascinated by it because as i say i was watching the film just going i really remember a very different book right i haven't read it in so long but i do remember it being like uh about the idea of I don't even know how to articulate this. Maybe you can help me. Um, it's it's the perils of communism, essentially. Okay. And you know the um, what happens to the common man if he believes in in um, Lenin and Stalin and all of that um, jazz. So obviously, at the um, this was 
obviously quite a big issue with the Cold War and everything like that. Mm-hmm. So you can see the rationale behind them trying to adapt the ending, which, um, and I'm going to insert a brief spoiler warning here. If you haven't read the book, this will be a point where you la 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 to yourself for about five minutes. Um, the pigs become equivalent to man and the animals become sort of subjugated and there is this really horrific ending where the um everything goes to hell in a <laughs> handbasket essentially um but the film flips it to offer this kind of hope of defeating the oppressive system and that's such an interesting weird decision to make especially with a book that is all about presenting you with the realities of the political choices that you make yeah that's yep wow <laughs> so 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 on that cheery note shall we wind up for today yeah All right. So thank you very much to our sponsors. Thank you to you for listening. We appreciate each and every one of you. Uh, Don't forget to subscribe through however you get your podcasts. And don't forget to tell your friends about us. We'd also really appreciate it if you could leave us a review um, and even a rating. If you enjoyed this episode, it really helps other people to find us. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a good egg thing to do. So (laughs) you can also find us online. I have a website, didyouoverstoptothink.com. And I am at Shalai Fan on Twitter. And I, my website is just MaryKayMcBrayer.com, but I'm also on Twitter at MKMcBrayer and Instagram at just my name again, Mary Kay McBrayer. So thank y'all so much for listening. Thank we you. love to hear from you, and we'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye. Bye.